This podcast is brought to you by Exergo Technologies, providing some of the most affordable and portable sports science technology on the market. Made by coaches for coaches. Stop guessing, start assessing. Produced from the Cube Studios, this is Strong by Science. In-depth conversations about science-based training, sports performance, and all things health and wellness. Here's your host, Max Schmarzo. Questions today is how can I use bands in my training? And so let me preface that by saying that's a very complicated question because bands themselves can be used for tons of different reasons. I'm just going to talk about how they can be used to manipulate load. I'm not going to be talking about how they can be used to change, you know, uh, load through different angles. And what I mean by manipulating load, bands are typically used for a couple of reasons. One, Bands are used to reduce the body weight at which the, um, sorry, reduced or used to assist a movement typically in the form of reducing body weight. So imagine someone doing a pull up, right? If we have bands pulling us upward, we lay way less now because the bands are assisting us and they're assisting us by actually reducing our body weight. So if we think about this in terms of application, why would you want to reduce body weight? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, someone who's not very strong. Maybe that movement itself is a very difficult movement for that person. And reducing the body weight allows them to do it in a more safe manner or in a safer manner. Think of it as like an older adult who can't get up off the chair very well. Now, if you have band-assisted movements, they're able to do multiple repetitions. Think about a pull-up. Someone who's not able to do uh, you know, two pull-ups or one pull-up. Right, if one pull-up is their one rep max and you have them do a pull-up every time, that's period taxing. So maybe we add bands on it so we reduce their body weight so they can now do five, six, seven, eight pull-ups and continually train at a reduced body weight until they're able to actually produce enough force to do their body weight itself multiple reps. So bands can be used to reduce body weight. Bands can also be re- used Again, to reduce body weight, but by reducing body weight, you actually increase velocity. So you lower the mass at which something, so you lower the mass and you increase, you lower the mass of the individual, right, by having band assistance, which then therefore increases the velocity of the movement if the movement itself is performed with maximal intent. So what I mean by that thing about a jump. We have band assistance. We now weigh less because the bands are pulling off, you know, pulling us upward, essentially making us weigh less. And now we have to produce force against you know, a less than body weight uh, situation. So now that's actually increasing the movement velocity and we're training quote unquote higher velocity movements. So that aspect of band assistance can be used for performance, you know, someone training high velocity, just as much as it can be used to assist someone doing a movement where they're not either comfortable or strong enough to do it themselves. Now there's also the uh, bands being used to increase, right, certain loads. Let's say, let's talk about eccentric first. Bands can pull you down. So if we have bands and they're anchored on the floor, we're holding them and we go down for a jump, they pull us down faster than we can possibly load. So this is where you get band accelerated movements. These are movements where we're using the bands to accelerate the speed at which they can fall faster than a free fall could fall itself. So if we're doing a bench press and we're working on rapid eccentric loads, having bands allows you to have a faster eccentric velocity than you would be able to if the bar, if the bar was just by itself and you let it free fall by uh, you know letting gravity take over. So bands can be used for eccentrically accelerated movements. They can also be used as a form of accommodating resistance. Now accommodating resistance typically occurs during the concentric portion of the movement. This is where you're pressing an object and as you lift it, the bar gets heavier and heavier. 
So as you push the bar further away from your body, you increase band tension. Now this is used because most submaximal movements, we perform it with maximal intent, we have a reduction in the amount of, you know, it's called actually a deceleration phase. You have a reduction towards the end of the movement and the amount of force you produce because your body actually has to start to slow the bar down. Otherwise they go flying out of your hands. So now you have band you know, resisted movements typically in the form of accommodating resistance. Now these aren't mutually exclusive, right? Because if you have bands on a bar, naturally you have the eccentrically accelerated portion you could have, by the way, you don't have to have because you can control the tempo. Obviously you don't have to have it free fall. You have the option to have it eccentrically uh, accelerated. And you also have the accommodating resistance when you're pressing upwards. So bands can be used for one, assistance itself, right? Reducing body weight to make a movement safer easier to perform and allows you to train if your body weight is near maximal at not such maximal loads. It's also used to reduce body weight because it assists or speeds up the movement. This is for a velocity accelerator, you know, uh, increased velocity. These are band um, accelerated, sorry, band assisted movements that essentially let you produce force against a load that is less than it would be otherwise without the band. So higher velocity training. We also have the band accelerated movements, and these are movements where the bands are pulling someone down quicker and forcing that eccentric phase to be faster than normal, right? And we're using that whether it's a bench press or a jump. It's things where bands can help accelerate the eccentric portion of the movement. And then we have the accommodating resistance portion where bands can be used to increase tension as the bars move further and further away from the body in the case of a bench press, which forces you to continuously produce force to get that bar to move and reduces the amount of deceleration phase, theoretically increasing the amount of EMG activity and um, the amount of force you have to produce to actually move the bar itself. And so when we look at bands, it's difficult to isolate them and say bands have to be used for only one reason or another. Bands can be used for numerous reasons in numerous different situations. And depending on the situation you're in, you might have to reduce body weight because someone's not weak or someone's not strong enough, or you might wanna accelerate the eccentric portion because that person is that strong and they need to really work on how fast they can produce eccentric force. Bands by themselves typically, unless you have a whole bunch of bands, don't provide enough resistance, but you can actually get really strong bands, which, you know, um, different type of really thick rubber bands are really useful for providing quite a bit of resistance. But you can also use it in conjunction with free weights themselves, uh, barbells, to add that accommodating resistance, to add that eccentric acceleration. And so while I see bands as being very useful and people typically associate them with only, you know, kind of the west side traditional movements where they're either in a speed bench, they can also be really used in a rehab setting to reduce the body weight of an individual where that loads too much. Because think about it for this way, if that person is trying to introduce plyometrics again and they haven't even introduced plyometrics once and they're gonna force them to do it at their body weight, why not re-reduce their body weight by adding bands? So now they can produce um, you know, sporting-like movements of plyometrics against a reduction in load, so their body mass now weighs less, and that's a great way to transition them going forward. Again, understanding the concept of bands, how they can be used, and how you can implement them into your training. Good question, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks for asking, and feel free to pass on uh, some more questions as we move forward. Thank you. All right, what's up, guys? Quick video uh, kind of answer to a question here. Someone messaged me, what is strong enough? And this is a great question because it's something I've gotten many times. And I can't credit any one coach or any one person with this answer because I've heard it from multiple. And uh, obviously, I don't know who the source is. So I didn't say it first, but uh, it logically makes sense. Strong enough is when strength stops transferring to the 
given key performance indicator you're using strength to improve. For example, if I can squat 400 pounds and increasing that squat by 50 pounds no longer increases my sprint, well, maybe that's strong enough. But to give that a caveat to that as well, or a rider, some sort of an addition to it, it's not just is the squat going to stop increasing my sprint. It's the effort to um, the effort to result ratio. So I might actually get benefit from squatting, you know, 500 pounds, but the time and effort I have to put into that, I might get a better return if I invested in something else. So it's a point of diminishing returns you receive. Also at the same time, you might, in order to get strong enough to squat 500 pounds, you might have to put on some more body mass. So also the strength to weight ratio may change. But I do think it's really important to talk about the aspect of time investment to return. That's why strength is so important early on, right? Strength yields huge transfer to sport early on because it's easy to gain strength quickly and it easily transfers to sporting events. But as you get stronger, that same transfer doesn't always occur. It's harder as you get stronger to continue to get stronger, right? It's not a one-to-one, I work one day squatting, I get 10 pounds stronger. It's actually curvilinear. So as you go up, right, you kind of start to diminish and plateau a little bit towards the end. So you might have to invest a whole another year to squat just another 40 pounds. But if you invested that year doing activities um, or exercises, sorry, that might increase a certain quality of speed, strength, or strength speed that you're quite deficient in, that's where you can get better transfer. So it's not saying, oh, strong enough is when strength stops the transfer, because ultimately it might not always stop transferring, but it's where the effort to um, transfer ratio begins to become almost diminishing. There's almost no point to do it, because as you get stronger, it takes more and more effort to get stronger. So it's not just, oh, strong is... You know, strong enough where it stops the transfer. Yes, kind of. It's where strong enough stops the transfer efficiently and effectively. And so that is why you start to look at other indicators and how maybe some of those variables that are lacking. And ultimately, if you have an end goal, this is my key performance indicator. Indicator. Here's what I'm doing to improve that key performance indicator. Then obviously you can understand that when we're trying to improve a certain quality, such as a KPI uh, that for sprinting say, that we want to make sure that our exercises that we're improving are also transferring over to that sprint performance as well. Hopefully that makes sense, guys. Uh, good question and take care. All right, what's up, guys? Today, the topic that we're going to be covering is neuromuscular power, what it is, and how we can train it. So first and foremost, what is neuromuscular power or anything neuromuscular in that nature? So let's break down the words. Neuro, meaning that it involves some aspect of your nervous system. So the way our body works is that we obviously have our brain, we have the spinal cord, and we have these descending nerves that goes to our muscles. And The way our muscles and nervous system interact in summation is what we call the neuromuscular system. So it's not just isolated to the muscle, the fiber types, how many, you know, how big the fibers are, um, what type of fiber they are, what's the sarcoplasmic reticulum like, what's the mitochondria like, but it also has to do with the nervous system itself. What's the conduction velocity of these nerves? Um, You know, how, what's the threshold of the nerves themselves? How easily can you turn on? the bigger motor units? What kind of neural discharge can you have from your motor cortex that allows you to perform a movement, uh, you know, in in the best, most uh, highest velocity and highest force uh, possible, so the most power that we could possibly have. So our neuromuscular system is made up of the nervous system, 
as well as the muscular system. And so this and dynamic interaction between the two is what we call the neuromuscular system. And so we're talking about developing neuromuscular power. We're not just talking about developing power or muscular power in terms of what's the fiber composition, how big the muscle is, because we can do that through certain training means. But we're also training the dynamic interaction itself, which means that when we piece together this full puzzle, all these aspects play a role. So obviously, you know, strength training, um, things where we do where muscles grow, give us the potential for that muscular system to work. But it's our nervous system that allows us to coordinate dynamic movements and these muscles themselves that we've developed to perform in a way that we like them to. So when we look at developing muscular power, there's obviously the context that people talk about, you know, we need maximal strength. We need the ability, the raw machinery of the muscles themselves to actually produce force. We look at now then the nervous system and the ability of the nervous system to turn on quickly, how fast can we initiate the nervous system, how much of a motor um, kind of a cortical drive can we have to bring about the highest number of motor units recruited, and how quickly can we recruit those motor units. Now, in a sporting movement, we're never actually going to just produce one single motor output, right? We're going to have typically a cyclic nature. So that means, think about running. Your legs contract, they relax. They contract, they relax. They're moving through cycles. One's on the ground, the other one's in the air. One's on the ground, the other one's in the air. And so the ability of the nervous system to repeat multiple bouts what is the speed at which the nervous system can produce a movement, and then how well can that neuromuscular system handle repeated efforts? So this is when you start to look at now the energy metabolism of the muscles themselves. How well are they able to utilize um, the fuel substrates that they have available? How well are you able to utilize and move some of the fuel substrates? And you could argue the mobilization of fuel substrates comes from the nervous system itself, right? Because essentially it's a hormone, and hormones are released by communication through a series of process, which initiates in the central nervous system. And these hormones can also be important for mobilizing some of the energy that we need to produce some of these bouts. So whether we're talking about gluconeogenesis or even, you know, increasing sympathetic tone. So we have uh, higher blood pressure, faster heartbeat, getting blood pumped to muscles quicker. So the central nervous system or just the nervous system in general, in conjunction with the muscular system, plays a critical role in how we do things. And when we look at training, you can never really look at it in isolation because every movement that we perform is neuromuscular in nature, right? There's never a movement that's occurring where the nervous system isn't sending some sort of motor input to that muscle. So that brings up the question as to whether or not should we be doing motor patterns that might disrupt certain move, sorry, should we do certain kind of motor pattern, the movement patterns that might disrupt the motor pattern of movement and sport itself. And so that's where people talk about, you know, how can we make sure we're training these patterns and these kinetic pairs of how these muscles are sequencing with one another in a way that's going to allow for greatest, um, essentially, you know, uh, transfer to sport. And I think the easiest way to th look at it, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, is that you have a global aspect. What's the raw machinery of the muscle? Can you do things in the most global sense to provide and develop that machinery? Can we do it in ways where it's not going to interfere with the motor pattern of sport itself? So maybe you're doing something like a heavy squat, a heavy, dead, a heavy deadlift, a carry. These are very, quote-unquote, general motor patterns that aren't necessarily specific to the sport itself. So maybe we want to then apply very specific means when the motor pattern begins to represent sport in a way that's not going to disrupt the motor pattern that we see for transfer. And so what I mean by that is you now might, instead of trying to... Um, you know, 
train only the squat forever and ever. Maybe you train the squat for the general principles, but then as you move to a more specific motor pattern, you change how far down you're squatting. You make it more quote-unquote sport-specific. You put it in a range and a velocity that emulates that of sport. So now when your body begins to associate movement neuromuscularly, it takes that movement and it relates it back to the sporting movement of jumping because now you're performing it in a range of motion in a length-tension relationship in a neuromuscular setting that's more representative of that sporting pattern itself. And so that's when we look at kinetic sequencing and kinetic pairs. So how are this muscle interacting with the other muscles around it? Like when I go into triple extension, that's a classic example, right? Our foot, or sorry, our ankle goes into plantar flexion. We have, um, we have obviously knee extension and hip extension. That's a very traditional movement that we see in sport. And so when we overload that pattern, maybe we want to overload it in a way that allows for greatest transfer. But we can't always overload triple extension, right? It's really hard to you know, you can't always jump with really heavy weights. So maybe the kinetic sequence or the kinetic pair of knee extension and hip extension at the same time in a muscle length relationship, so how far you're dipping down and coming back up, is that much more specific to sport? And then so maybe you do different pairs, so working on knee extension and ankle extension, but you gotta look at how the joints cross each other as well, because obviously if you're doing knee extension and ankle extension, but your hip isn't getting extended, where that knee extension has to coincide with hip extension, because if we look at how the rectus femoris moves and how our, some of our hip flexors work, where they cross multiple joints, they're considered biarticulate, and so we need those to function together as well. This is where watching sport watching movement can really help you can begin to look at different movement patterns and say okay I see how neuromuscularly these joints and how these dynamic interactions are working with one another. At the same time, outside of that kinetic sequencing and how those things are processed, you can also look at whether or not the speed and the intensity at which these are occurring are similar to that of sport. So is the nervous system firing at the same speed that it is in sport, right? When you lift something really heavy, well, that's maximal intent. When you sprint, that's maximal intent. When you do something, any sporting movement, that's typically near maximal intent. So that's why people often associate um, things like heavy squats or heavy movements or even like the Olympic movements like a clean because those typically are done with maximal intent with good transfer to sport because that, you know, the intent is behind it. But that's not the only thing in isolation. If you look at some of the Russians and what they used to do, they talked about how this periodization model or whatever you want to call it, the uh, the programming model, because they actually, Yuri Verkoshansky didn't necessarily agree with the kind of monolithic or stagnant periodization process that they had. But you look at it in a way that you say, okay, here are my general movements. I know I can get benefit for, um, or I can get transfer into sport with some global aspects of strength being developed. And then maybe once those global aspects of strength no longer improve the sporting aspects, so the transfer is reduced, we've moved to more and more specific movement patterns that allow for greater and greater transfer. So from the spectrum, you start very global, you see what you can get with a very global aspect in regards to transfer, and then you move across the specificity in regards to speed, velocity, and how they interact with one another because you start from a global aspect, so you develop the machinery, the raw muscular properties, and then you move from a neuromuscular specificity aspects from now you're intertwining some of those dynamics of you know how quickly care and turn the system on to get that benefit and that's where doing things um, where maybe you're looking at certain plyometric movements certain movement patterns you can do 
certain you know position specific isometrics unloaded to loaded movements band assisted movements these are all aspects that quote unquote affect the neuromuscular system i don't necessarily don't like that term because it <laughs> what isn't the neuromuscular system but it's the simple idea that you're putting the body in a position for some aspect of overload that's going to challenge the motor pattern itself that might aid in the development so when you're looking at it as a whole to wrap this all up it's easy to look at say, oh, neuromuscular system is a global aspect. We break down the words, obviously, muscular meaning the you know the muscular system. How was the composition of it and the neurosystem, the nervous system, you know, the neurons, the central nervous system, maybe even some reflexes as well. We're talking about and how all those fit together, and then going forward, how to program it. Maybe going from that global non-specific aspect to a more specific aspect where those kinetic sequencing and pairs become more and more uh, refined and more specific, only based on the ability of that lack of global transfer from strength to movement itself or move sorry global aspect of uh, strength the development or transfer into sport so that kind of hopefully you know answers a very complicated question quickly and dives into that little topic into a little more detail um, than what i could do over instagram or social media i appreciate you guys asking again feel free to keep asking i like these questions always great to uh dive into some of these topics so thank you guys and take care all right, what's up, guys? Here, I got a question, and this shouldn't take too long to answer. It's about um, what is French contrast training? And to answer this question, I'm just going to dive into contrast training as a whole. And I steal this uh, definition of my understanding from this from Yuri Verkashansky's uh, one of his books. I don't remember the top of my head. I think it was uh, Special Strength Manual. For, I butcher the name. Strength Special Strength Manual for Coaches. Um, it's an awesome book, and uh, so I'll put the link in the bio for this. Uh, so if you guys want to check it out, you're more than welcome to. But the idea of uh, contrast training is that you're challenging a motor pattern, right? The idea is that if we think about jumping, let's use the motor pattern of jumping. The idea of contrast training is we're challenging the motor engram, so the motor pattern, how those muscles are firing together, to be the most efficient as possible. And so this is why you might do something along the lines of this setup. I'm going to explain how you might set up a French, or not a French, just any contrast. You might do a heavy squat. You might do a band-assisted jump. You might do a slightly loaded jump. And you might do a body weight jump. That's just one of many ways you can do it. But the idea is all of those movements are essentially overloading the same pattern in a different manner. You have the maximal strength aspect of a very heavy squat. You have the band-assisted jump, which is you know challenging the ability to jump against a reduced load that your body weights are higher velocity movement. You have the you know lightly loaded jump, which is challenging your ability to jump against maximal intent still, obviously, but with a lighter load but still load. And then you do the body weight jump, so you finish with the desired motor pattern at the weight and load that which you perform it at. And so the idea behind this originally what I read was that you're trying to overload some of the, or I guess the similar motor pattern in different ways to challenge the system, that being the neuromuscular system and the motor pattern, you know, how we develop motor patterns to produce the most efficient outcome possible. So instead of thinking about this as load, and you know stressing a system think about it as means of you know we're challenging the motor pattern and the way we challenge it are with different sorts of stresses and those stresses come in the form of load or lack of load and that way when we're jumping 
and we're doing a, sorry, a squat and we're trying to associate with a jump, if we understand that the squat is supposed to be essentially, right, it's a really heavy squat, so obviously you can't jump with it. It might be done somewhere in like 85% and above, even up to 90, 95, right? It's near maximal effort. It's just the same intent as if you're jumping, but it's under a different kind of load. So you're challenging the nervous system now to produce high levels of force, recruit large number of motor units. Now you have that same potentiated effect and you go into a band assisted jump. And now we have a higher velocity movement where we reduce the load. So now you're stressing the system from a different way. How quickly and how fast can you produce force when the velocity is higher? And now you do a slightly loaded jump. So it's maybe it's a speed strength jump where you still have some load, but it's in between the two unloaded and maximally loaded. And then you might go back to the body weight jump to finish it off because that is the very specific motor pattern that you're actually trying to you know, cause adaptation in. And so when you look at contrasts and how you set up a contrast, it's not just doing something heavy, light, and then you know maybe accelerated with a band. Maybe you're looking at it in terms of a motor pattern. How do I challenge this motor pattern to overcome certain obstacles in the form of load that way we're stressing that pattern each and every time. So maybe if your goal is to work on a broad jump or you know something horizontal, you'll do a hip thrust because that's that same horizontal that sequencing that you have. Maybe you'll do a deadlift because it's that hinge pattern. Maybe you'll do a scoop med ball toss because it's still that same hinge pattern. And then you finish with that broad jump. So now you're challenging the ability to produce horizontal force vectors over and over again through an organized means. It's not random, chaotic, you know, high load, high velocity movements, but here's the motor pattern. Here's how we're going to segmentally break it down and how we're going to put different exercises that overload that motor pattern and means that we'd like to stress the system to better self-organize. So then we can then go do our final motor pattern, the one we're actually trying to train, which is that broad jump and get the most benefit we can because we've challenged the system through different obstacles before performing that last broad jump. So it's actually a way, if you look at dynamical systems theory, about how we the body self-organize and you put it all under these different types of stresses. And so that way you're challenging the nervous system, the muscular system from all different domains. So when it goes back to that body weight jump, the theory is it's going to self-organize or ideally self-organize in the most efficient way possible. So when you think about contrast, Motor pattern, means of stressing, stressing in terms of, you know, what load can I do to impose on the body to force it to self-organize in a more efficient manner. Once you do that, you can add in and play with however you want to set it up. But once you have that system of framework, that becomes the easiest way to think about organizing this all together into a program itself. Hopefully that made sense. I know I didn't specifically target and tackle French contrast training. I know there's some specific parameters at which they follow, but the idea of contrast contrast training as a whole, according to Yuri Verkashansky's book, that's what I like best. And I think it makes sense most from a motor learning standpoint, a neurological, you know, neuromuscular standpoint in regards to developing a more efficient motor pattern under different sorts of stresses. Great question, guys. Again, feel free to shoot them my way. Really enjoying this and I hope you guys do as well. Take care. What's up, guys? How are we doing today? The topic we're going to dive into is about adaptive capacity. So I use this term quite a bit. I use the term, you know, adapt, what is your adaptive capacity? And at times it's kind of a nebulous term that people might not understand because they don't have the context from which I'm trying to express that uh, meaning from. So when I look at adaptive capacity, 
That is your body's ability to handle any type of stressor and adapt to it. So it's a very universal term that's used to describe your body's current state of being, quote unquote, and how it can handle any form of external stressor, whether that's in the form of you know, psychological stress, mental stress, you're trying to learn something, um, physical stress like exercise, sleep deprivation stress, right? That's a, that's a metabolic stress, not technically stress like it you know, bothers you, but sleep deprivation in terms of, let's say, um, homeostatic stressor. Uh, you know, nutrition or not adequate nutrition, which is another form of metabolic stress. All these things are different metabolic stressors that we are placed on our body. And when we have metabolic stressors that accumulate, it burdens our body, and our body has to use and move resources in order to deal with this stress. If we want to adapt to a specific stimulus, in this case we're talking about exercise, we need to have adaptive capacity that isn't overrun by uncontrolled metabolic stressors. We need to have enough room in that system to have an adaptive capacity that's able to handle you know, what is coming onto our body in terms of you know, the physical stress that we're imposing on it in the weight room in order to see the adaptive gains. And so there's a great study that looks at this. It takes two groups, sorry, one group of athletes actually, um, and it splits them down based stratifies them based on their current inflammatory state and i believe they used uh, lymphocytes to t-cells i want to say at the top of my head and they did a ratio of uh, i'm not going to quote the ratio because i'm not going to remember it properly you guys can probably get on me from misquoting it but essentially they had a high inflammatory group and a low inflammatory group and when we have a high inflammatory state we are in terms we're in a, a lowered adaptive capacity we're in a current state of stress and so they trained two groups exactly the same, and the one group that had a lower inflammatory state at the beginning actually began to make better adaptations during the training cycle. When testing was finished, the high inflammatory group had less gains compared to the low inflammatory group when it was stratified at the start. And what that tells us is when our body is inflamed, under stress, and this is, I'll finish this, when our body's stressed, right, we have less adaptive capacity and this is seen throughout the literature throughout whether you're talking about under um you know mal quote-unquote malnutrition right we're not eating enough reduces our ability to adapt to certain physical stressors we're not sleeping enough reduces our ability to adapt to physical stressors whether we're stressed out in life or not reduces our ability to adapt to physical stressors and all these influence our adaptive capacity and so when you look across the literature and see a common thread between stress and ability to adapt to a specific stimulus that is when we're talking about the adaptive capacity of the body and that is where we use certain inferential metrics to begin to understand what current state is the body in and what is the adaptive capacity of it you could even argue that movement quality influences your adaptive capacity if you have poor movement quality and you're slightly asymmetrical and it's not slightly but you are asymmetrical in a squat and with a slight amount of rotation then you can only handle so many types of squatting patterns until that begins to cause an issue on the body and so that non-optimal biomechanical stance you're in or movement you're in is going to cause some sort of increase in stress that's outside of the constrained or desired stress they might be placing or attempting to place in the body. So that adds to 
um, the total like burden on the body itself and reduces the adaptive capacity of the human body. And so when we look at the quote-unquote capa adaptive capacity of the human body, we're looking at all things in one. It's not just, oh, you know, uh, what, what is the person's, you know, hand grip score today or how high uh, can they jump or it's not, you know, um, certain questionnaires you might have them fill out or a slew of other things. It's all those together. You want to understand the current state of the being by understanding where they were, where they are, and where they're going to be. And you can use other things to get more detail into it. So what are their actual biometrics? Diving into some endocrinology, understanding hormone levels, understand daily habits, what's their sleep pattern like, what's their nutrition like, and all these things when you begin to optimize them. I use that in air quotes because optimal is different for every person. You begin to expand the adaptive capacity. And we also know that when we cause adaptation itself, that itself increases the adaptive capacity. We understand if we increase the ability to get, you know, um, to run a, increase our aerobic capacity, then what was previously taxing isn't taxing anymore. And the great way or easy way to understand this is if we bench press 100 pounds and 100 pounds is our one rep max and we get strong enough to bench press 200 pounds, then 100 pounds becomes 50% of our one rep max and no longer has the adaptive strain on our body that 100 pounds once had. So be, being stronger, being more physically fit increases our adaptive capacity. At the same time, finding ways to reduce these external stressors also increases our ability to adapt in that current state itself. And so you have this kind of intertwined ability of the human body to become more robust and resilient against some of these stressors. At the same time, modifying external stressors that you don't want imposed on the human body are gonna increase the ability to adapt to that specific stressor itself. And so when I'm talking about your adaptive capacity, I'm talking about that as a whole. And you gotta understand that when you talk about terms like adaptive capacity, it's not this like, oh, this woo term that kind of floats in space that has no meaning. Well, it has huge amounts of meaning. It means actually probably the most to trading itself than any other aspect of you know trading. Because if we don't eat, we don't sleep, we're too stressed out in life. It doesn't matter what you think you're imposing on the human body, right? The adaptive capacity can only handle so much. And so when your adaptive capacity is near its maximum and you begin to impose these stresses, right, that's when we start talking about internal loading. And internal loading isn't the same as external load. You might expect a certain type of external load imposed upon the body to cause a certain internal response, but if we don't know our internal state, or we don't have an idea, we don't have any sort of metrics, or even take into consideration what that might be, well then that external imposition of that stress might cause an internal uh, stressor that's too large to adapt to, greater than your adaptive capacity itself. So how hard should I train? Hard enough to, <laughs> that we're not overbearing the adaptive capacity, hard enough to cause progression. And that's where we start to look at why certain types of programs um, and specificity becomes really important because as we become, um, you know, all these things in life that are going on, whether it's a school, college, athletics, and they have to stress about, uh, you know, the education and passing the classes and all these other things, all those go into how our body is going to respond to training. That's where the psychological well-being aspect and having athletes, where can they reduce some of these, you know, actual psychological stressors that are imposing on the body that are reducing the adaptive capacity itself. So when I talk about the term adaptive capacity, it's talking about the system as a whole. What is the current state of the body? What is the capacity itself? The capacity can be expanded. It can be influenced by external uh, entities and external stressors and all these things that go into it. But ultimately, it's a term that we need to take the time to recognize and appreciate. 
right? You can't always act on it. You're not going to know all of these things all the time. But you need to appreciate that these external aspects matter. You need to appreciate that optimizing sleep, um, all these, you know, your nutrition, your psychological well-being, all influences our adaptive capacity as a whole and how we're going to eventually respond to training. And if our ultimate goal is a physical goal, understanding all those external aspects from biometrics to biomechanics all matters. Thank you guys for listening. Really appreciate it. Great topic to dive into. Always enjoy this. Thank you and take care. All right. Today I'm diving into the question and the question itself, not really a question. It's more of a, uh, it's a topic and the topic would be tendon training, what we can do to improve our tendons, how we can help deal with tendinopathies and what we can do to insert into actually a program to help periodize that process of tendon development. So first and foremost, I think when we're talking about tendon training, people often think about two things. I gave one there, sorry, two things. We think about isometrics, uh, kind of, you know, things that help increase stiffness of the tendon. And then we can think about plyometrics, things that utilize or movements that utilize um, the elasticity of the tendon. And so there's a classic way of kind of looking at the muscle tendon unit complex, and that is based on the velocity at which the movement is occurring. We might have different changes in how the muscle fascicle length change and how the tendon's fascicle length change. So when we have a slow controlled movement, typically we see greater change in the muscle fascicles than we do in the tendon fascicle, how, you know, the length of tendon. However, when we have a high velocity movement, we typically see larger changes in the tendon length and less changes in the muscular length. And the reason why this is important, think about high velocity movements like plyometrics, well, that tendon's having a large elastic recoil, right? It wants to store and preserve elastic energy to help propel you if you're doing a box jump, a sprint, whatever it is for conservation of energy, right? It's uh, running economy is one of those things we use, but movement economy in general, right? Tendons play a really important role in that and they can help us um, utilize stored elastic energy and give us that quote-unquote springy effect. Now the tendon itself, when it goes under this high velocity, is under a lot of stress and strain as well because it has the responsibility, because initially if you think about you know the physics of tendons, and it's stiff and then it hits and we have a force that moves it and that force aspect causes that tendon to change length and then that tendon recoils and causes us to move. So this going under a lot of strain quickly. However, if we do a slower movement, that tendon doesn't go in as much strain or change of length, I should say, and the muscles tend to change more length. So a simple way of looking at this is high velocity, high impact movements typically put your tendon under the most quote unquote stress and dynamic type of stress. Slower movements typically help um, not reshape, that's a bad word to use, but help the tendon itself stay a little bit healthier. So that's where you see things like isometrics, slow tempo, eccentric and concentric movements with a lot of load help increase the tendon health. But also, right, it's not necessarily gonna increase its performance. The higher velocity movements increase its performance. Jake Tura from YSU just, you know, Instagram um, made a good post about this, talking about it. And he was demonstrating how, you know, an eccentric Front squat help, you know, is the health aspect of the tendon, while a depth jumps more that performance aspect of the tendon. Now, I think what we take for granted at times, 
two things. One, when we're playing a sport that requires us to be constantly loading our tendons, we need to make sure that our training prepares ourselves properly. So taking large durations of time off from impacts can be, um, in my opinion, maybe a little detrimental at times because we can still have the impact present in terms of it being there in the program. It's just the amount of velocity and force on that tendon itself is much more submaximal compared to what it might be in a more ramped up series. So that's where you kind of have the, you know, the famous Yuri Verkashansky kind of model of extensive to intensive. And what he did was he did low level submaximal plyometrics extensively. So multiple times, multiple reps to help build some of the tendon integrity and developed and sorry, programmed into more intense movements. Now during that intense phase you did things like depth jumps and movements that were really short ground ground contacts lots of kinetic energy falling objects things that are really the high demanding movements in sport that extensive portion might be a good opportunity where you can work on some of these tendon qualities as well where you're working on maybe an isometric for a longer duration where you're looking at um, adding some eccentric some tempo work things that help the quote unquote structural integrity of the tendon now, when we're talking about tendinopathies, that's a little bit different because the cause of a tendinopathy is a little bit uh, debated in the literature. And there are times where people have, uh, you know, quote unquote, unhealthy looking tendons, but they don't have pain. But the way our brain works is we can associate movements with pain. I and mean, that's called neuromechanical coupling. That's how our brain talks to our body. It's how our brain understands movement patterns. And at times we might have issues with the quote unquote neuromechanical coupling and we might associate a certain movement with a pain and that gives us a tendon pain. So that's where doing things where you have an external metronome beeping in the background, you're doing tempo work because it might promote and quote unquote, I guess it'd be well, not an uncoupling, but it'd be a, a, a sense you remove the um, locus of the loci of uh, focus here. So you're not focused on the tendon pain, focus on external stimulus. Because you're focused on external stimulus, you don't associate that movement with tendon pain. That's where isometrics can come in as well. If isometrics cause an analgesic effect, meaning they actually uh, not numb the area, but they don't have, um, you know, it doesn't elicit the same amount of pain doing the traditional movement that would otherwise, if you didn't do isometrics before, they allow you to then work in a zone where you don't have that pain so you're no longer associating that movement with pain itself and so some of the movements that then you might want to introduce are some of those movements that are higher load slow tempo um, some of the isometrics some of the heavy eccentrics because that aspect's going to help restructure the tendon you need stress to help restructure the tendon right that's how the body works doing really light weights probably isn't going to get you there and then you can add in supplemental stuff as well whether it's BFR to help increase the hormonal milieu, right, to help improve the recovery of the area, promote growth hormone. Maybe it's some nutritional aspects where you're going to introduce a little more vitamin C, some collagen, because vitamin C and collagen are part of the um, process of which our cartilage rebuild, specifically our tendons and whatnot. And so having that all put together can help, you know, give you a little more environment that's a little more, an environment that's a little more beneficial to tendon health itself. And so when you're thinking about programming, maybe during that extensive portion, that beginning portion where you're introducing impacts and you're having a little bit higher load on that area, when you move to the more intensive aspects, you're reducing some of the 
quote unquote, traditional loading, heavy loading patterns that you see, and you increase the movement velocity to more impact-based plyometrics. So hopefully that kind of gives a little bit of outline how you can put this all together. There's obviously a little more detail to how um, tendons work, the muscles work, because it's not just about is that tendon healthy, it's also are you timing your joints and the co-contractions properly to allow proper utilization of that elastic energy. Um, there's different movement patterns that you could debate whether or not someone is just having, you know, quote unquote, they're not reactive enough because it's the skill that we're actually trained to develop. So again, you can do all the tendon work you want, but if you're not actually training that movement pattern that we see in sport, you might not get that transfer. There's a lot of debate involved in regards to the specifics when it comes to the sporting aspect, but we've actually, uh, the research field's you know, pretty done a really good job of sifting out some of the details regarding um, how we keep our tendons healthy and then how that actually a little bit different than performance and how you can balance the two when you're training itself. Good question, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Really appreciate it. And uh, keep sending them my way. Thank you.